Hello, everyone. This is William L. Myers, Jr. I am the author of the Philadelphia Legal Series, and you're watching the podcast Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have the privilege of talking with David Baldacci, who is the author of 40 national and international best-selling novels for adults and seven for younger readers. David also has a master class, which you can subscribe to because he is a master writer. And we're going to be talking about the craft of writing uh, because I know that not just readers, but writers will be watching this. And then we're going to get into David's latest book, which is the fourth book in the Atlee Pine series, which is entitled Mercy. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, would you just tell us a little bit about your career? Um, you know, starting with the book that came out in 1996, I guess it was Absolute Power. And just walk us through how your career has evolved, maybe some lessons, some lessons that you learned. Absolutely. I, I've been writing since I was a kid. I started out writing short stories. I was a big Raymond Carver fan, Eudora Wealthy, Flannery O'Connor, Truman Capote. And short stories are great for aspiring writers because they're short. <laughs> you can accomplish something in 10 or 12 pages, but it has all the elements of long form fiction. You know, you have narration, you have plot, you have dialogue, you have characters. So for me, it was a good way to start cut my teeth. And I did that for years, you know, through high school and college and law school and practicing law. Then I started writing screenplays. A friend of mine went out to Hollywood to break into film. He brought back a script. I'd never read one before. I mm -hmm. thought that was an interesting way to write a story that would end up not on the page, but on a screen. So off I went for three years writing screenplays while I was practicing law in Washington, D.C. Had a couple of them optioned. I had an agent um, for my screenplays. And then I had an idea for uh, the novel Absolute Power. Um, my law office was fairly near the White House and I would go out and take a walk and I would see the, the building. I'd see the Secret Service sometimes. Occasionally you'd see the motorcade leave. Uh, this is in the early 1990s. George H.W. Bush was president then. And I'd been a student of history and I had heard a lot about, you know, the Kennedy and the Camelot and the secret tunnels between the Treasury Department and OEOB and the White House and all that where apparently some of these twists took place. And what interested me was, you know, the president is a thousand careers are tied to the president's job. So the president goes down, he takes lots of people with him. Yeah. So I thought about, let me write a book that sort of flips all the moral stereotypes on their head. So I had the president of the Secret Service, typically people you look up to who were sort of the, the, the antagonists in the novel and had a burglar who was, you know, stole from people for a living. And he was sort of the protagonist, the guy who had the most morals in the, in the story. And I spent about three years writing that. I was a trial lawyer. And whatever you think about lawyers, we work long hours because that's how we make yeah. our living. Uh, we saw little bits and pieces of our life. Um, and I finished it and then sent it up to a number of agents in New York with a short query letter. Um, I knew I needed an agent. And how I compiled the list was I tried to be as creative in doing that as I was in writing the novel. So anytime I heard about a first-time novelist who had made it big and you know had a first sale, I went to the bookstore and I'd look in the acknowledgments of that book where they right. always sent their agent. So I got a list of six or seven agents that way. I'd send a query later up with a full manuscript, which today you probably wouldn't do. You'd send a few sample chapters. Right. The query later said, basically, you know, I'm David Baldacci. I'm a trial lawyer in D.C. This book is about the president, the Secret Service, a burglar, a cover up. I guarantee if you read the first page, you won't put it down until you read the last page. That's great. Um, 
And, you know, and six of the seven called me up pretty much immediately and said, hey, we'd love to be your agent. Um, and I really went from there. Wow, that's that, that's a fantastic story. And I don't think many writers, many writers experience that. I think for, for most writers, I mean, it probably has to do with the quality of the work. But for most writers, you're out there scrounging, you know, trying to get an agent in, and it's very difficult. It is. It is. Um, in your master class, David, you say everything comes down to story. What do you mean by that? You can um, come up with a, a plot and some characters that aren't fully developed. And uh, the story's not going to go anywhere because of that. When I say story, I really mean the whole melting pot that goes into a fictional narrative. Um, I can write a terrific plot. Um, and if I inhabit it with characters that the readers don't care about because they're not fully developed, it's not going to re really be a good story. People might read it quickly and they're going to forget it and maybe not read another one of yours because nothing really hit them on a human level. The way you connect and have a nexus with readers on a human level is only through the characters, not the plot itself. So for me, I take both parts really seriously. And I uh, spend a lot of time on the characters and the characters oftentimes drive the story narrative for me as well. Um, and I take them into, you know, a number of different directions that seem plausible, uh, depending on what the characters are and how I've built them. But human beings crave stories. You know, people talk about, gee, does books, do books have a history? Do they have a future in this country? Because you can put on a VR goggle and go off and ski the Alps in your living room. You can go play a, a video game. You can binge a thousand episodes in one night if you want on a multitude of platforms. So how in the world is there room for books anymore in our society? But stories are what human beings are all about. You know, our histories used to be handed down via oral histories, one story from one generation to the next. And I think human beings crave that. And the one thing that books can do that other diversions like movies and television can't is it allows the, it allows the reader to have a place at table. If you watch a movie, you're watching a director's vision of what a story is. Right. Uh, everything is out there plain for you to see. You know, you see the pictures, you see the, the, the music, you, you hear the dialogue. But I tell readers that no book I write, write is finished until that reader finishes the book and closes it because they put their own template and imprint on that story. I can, I can talk to 10 different readers who same, read the same book and they can come away with 10 different conclusions about what that book's supposed to mean and represent and who the characters are. So that for me is what story, that's why story is paramount in all of its elements. And you really have to bring your A game. Um, and if, if you really want to be a writer, you will go through the gauntlet that all writers go through to get to the end. Right. Weren't meant to be a writer, then you probably will go off and do something else because that first rejection hits. It's like a mortal wound, and you know and you're like, I, I don't need this in my life. But if right. you really want to write, then you know all the rejections. That love of writing will be like a body armor, and that first rejection will sting a little bit, but it won't yeah. kill you. Yeah. So you said that the way to really connect with people, connect with readers on an emotional level, is through characters. What do, you, what do you think you have to design into a character that makes that character something that most readers will, will connect with? Two elements I think are really important. One is <clears throat> never write a perfect character. I mean, just don't do that. If you want to turn off readers, write someone who has no flaws, and that'll turn them off for like in a nanosecond because the first thing they're going to think of, this is totally implausible. That person doesn't exist. Secondly, 
give the person, give the character obstacles, give them, I call it baggage in life. And almost all of my series characters have baggage they have to overcome or are overcoming at the present time. Um, Because all of us have that in our lives. You know, life is hard and problems come up, issues come up, obstacles come up that prevent us from reaching our dreams, aspiring to other things. And we have to deal with that because that's just part of life. So if, if I want to connect with a human being on a universal level through a character, I want to give that reader something to hang their hat on that this character is authentic because life is not perfect. He's got problems and issues, just like I have problems and issues. He's struggling to make it. I'm struggling to make it. So I'm going to go along for the ride with that character and see what happens. Because really, by studying this character following along in this story, maybe I can learn something about my own experience, my own life. Right. Um, And I think that's a good transition to the book behind me, Mercy. Because, man, every character in this book has baggage. Every character in this book has flaws. They're internally conflicted. They're externally conflicted. I just finished the book last night. I love the book. You pulled me in, really, from the very first chapter. I wanted to find out what was going to happen with these with these characters. Um, why don't we start with Atlee Pine? For people who aren't familiar with the series, Tell us a little bit about Atlee's backstory. Who is she? So Atlee Pine right now is an FBI agent who works uh, in the hinterlands of Arizona near the Grand Canyon. When she was six years old, um, she lived with her parents and her sister, Mercy Pine, her twin, in rural Georgia. Someone broke into the house one night, abducted Mercy, and almost killed Atlee Pine in the process. And for 30 years... They have no idea what happened to Mercy Pine. She's just vanished off the face of the earth. And that one traumatic um, experience decimated the Pine family. The parents got divorced, the, the dad vanished, and then mom disappeared afterwards, leaving Atlee alone. So Atlee is psychologically traumatized by this. She, ha- she has no closure. She has no idea what happened to her twin. She has survivor's guilt at the yin-yang because it's like, why not? Why wasn't I taken? Why was Mercy taken? How can that be fair? So she has all that baggage. And so she's made the decision in the first novel, Long Road to Mercy, in, in this uh, four book series, in order for me to move forward in my life personally and professionally, I've got to find out what happened to my sister. I've got to have closure on this. And so she and her friend, Carol Blum, who works with her at the Bureau, they go on this multi-book journey. And every book, more and more layers are peeled away from the onion. They find out who kidnapped her. They find out why. They find out sort of where... Mercy was dropped off. Then they follow along all these different clues. They go back to the scene of the crime. They talk to people. They talk to other people who are connected to these. They find clues along the way. And eventually it comes to a culmination in Mercy where everything is resolved in this novel. And people are made aware of not only what happened to Mercy, but also what happened to Pine's family. Yeah. And it, I mean, the book really is a crescendo and it, it is really emotionally powerful. And what you what you do in this book is... Um, You tell the story not only from Atlee Pine's perspective, but um, we're introduced to Mercy, and who now it was now going by the name El Kane, and you're finding out from her what happened to her, and she brings her own story into this, so that at the same time Atlee is looking for her, Kane is out living her life, and something happens that brings the two of them together. Um, tell tell the, the readers a little bit about Mercy, now going by the name of L. Kane, because, I mean, this is a fascinating character. 
So when I sat down to write this book, I really had to make a decision. Um, it had been three books in. I could have written this book one of two ways. One, I could have waited until the very end and then revealed mercy. And but I thought that would have been a cheat and a disrespect for the readers who'd hung in with me for three books. So I thought, you know, no, not only do I want the readers to know mercy over many, many pages and to know from her own perspective and point of view what her life had been like, I want to experience that too as the writer. I want to jump into that too. So I built her life um, in the novel and you meet her very early on in the novel about what she's been through, what she's had to survive and the life she's built for herself based on everything that's happened to her. Her life is not perfect. You know, she's at the, at the lower rung of a lot of socioeconomic levels. Um, she's missed out on the many opportunities her sister had along the way. But at the, at the end of the day, she's doing the best she absolutely can with the, the hand that life dealt her. Um, but as you say, uh, during the course of the novel, something happens and she realizes too that just like her sister unknowingly, both sisters working in parallel, she too has to find some closure in her life. She has to find out some things about her past that are very meaningful to her. So it's almost like two sisters are unwittingly on the same parallel track. Yeah, and and I and I will tell you, and I'll tell people who are going to read the book, because you brought um, mercy into it and and took the readers forward through her point of view too. As a reader, you're thinking. When are they going to meet? When are they going to meet? When are they going to meet? And they're getting closer and closer and closer. Um, and when it finally happens, it, it's very satisfying. It's a very satisfying moment. But but let's talk about this. You have these two sisters. One, Mercy, who's kidnapped at age six. Atlee, who's um, left home with her parents, almost killed. When they meet, you know, it's it, it's happiness but it's not that simple. It's not, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. Let's go off and, you know, run into the sunset together. It's really, it's really complex what happens between these two. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I do. I, I had to put a lot of thought into that because um, this thing, I needed to get this absolutely right after all these books. Um, so what I decided to do ultimately was I decided to do sort of a, a hybrid approach. The initial seconds of when they meet, um, mm -hmm. I want to call it the hallmark moment, <laughs> when things are white picket fences and flower baskets um, and bunny rabbits running around looking sweet. Uh, and then real life sets in. Um, and then the anger and just the, the frustration and all the things in the building over 30 years that impact real people in a real way came out like a volcano erupting. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no other way I could possibly have written that and been authentic and plausible um, because these are two very different ladies. And I think that, you know, Pine was really growing apprehensive about this whole thing. She wants to find Mercy, but the last time she saw Mercy, she was a ponytailed blonde six-year-old with a big smile and they had fun. They loved each other, they're best friends and life was great. 30 years have passed and Pine knows she's not finding the pigtail little girl you know, right. at, the end of this, at the end of this tunnel, it's going to be something very different. And the more she learns about the past of her sister and what she's experienced, she has no idea what she's going to be confronting at the end of that tunnel. So for, for me, every scene that I had together that was with, with both of them during the course of this reuniting, I really had to carefully choreograph and weigh everything precisely, how far I wanted to go in either direction, you know, the initial meeting, terrific. And then the repulsion, it's almost like two molecules kicking away from each other. 
and coming back again because they had a common purpose and then kicking back away. You know, there was a scene in, in a hotel room where Mercy just finally has it out, you know, and just everything comes stumbling out of her and just like the fourth, the fourth of a mighty river that where the dam has burst and she just has to get it out of it. It's not like she blames her sister for any of this, but she's also only human. And this right. is more angry woman. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, you can you can see the envy because in her view, Atlee's the one who got to live a normal life, and and you know Mercy, of course, was was taken. Um, I know that you're big on the, the, the hero villain binary, and you have two sets of villains here. You have the original villains involved in the taking of Mercy as a young child, and that whole storyline has to be brought to fruition. Um, but you also introduce a second set of villains that come into the story because of what of what Mercy does. Um, do you want to talk about them? I, I loved both of the villains, Peter Buckley and Britt Spector, who you brought into the story. Um, you know, they say that the villains have to be big enough, have to be worthy enough to to battle against the heroes. If you have big heroes, you have to have big villains. Um, and these are big villains. Yeah, they really are. I, it, it's interesting. I've always felt in my own life that when I was a trial lawyer and I would be going up against other lawyers and other, and having to deal with clients and all that, you quickly got a sense that the blusterers out there, the big talkers out there were the least dangerous of people, <laughs> you know, they just, they, they, their own insecurities are the reason why they, they're the loudest mouse in the room. Uh, the ones I always worried about were the quiet ones, uh, the ones who spoke very little, but they seemed to be keenly aware of everything that was going on. And so I used that model for Peter Buckley in this story. Seemingly a very nice guy. If you saw him on the surface, he sort of reminded me of like a, a younger Ted Bundy, you know, yeah. who was this pre, pre-law guy who was handsome and glib and the ladies just seemed to really fall for him and ended up many of them dying because of that. But it's mm-hmm. that it's that outward sheen of authenticity and innocence that really makes someone dangerous if they're actually dangerous underneath because they can sell that line and you don't realize the truth until it's too late. It's the monster in disguise and my God, you know, there's no escape hatch, right? So that was sort of Peter Buckley. Britt Spector's character was, was obviously complicated as well. Physically, I needed to have her sort of close to an equal to the Pine sisters but I decided to do something very special with her uh, that's revealed in the story. And then the old villains from the past, you know, the Atkins, Desiree, you know, for me, um, I took that, um, I needed to have Mercy to be, have an experience where the trauma was very real and very intense and very personal. Um, And I've read a lot of these stories. I'm sure you have two real stories in the news where this has happened to people. Um, where they have been held captive for long periods of time. And it changes you absolutely completely. And I think the biggest thing it it takes away from you is being able to trust anyone ever again. Uh, That's just totally gone. And so when you can't trust anyone else, you rely totally on yourself. That's an awful lot of pressure to put on somebody that you know you have no backup plan, no safety valve, no safety net. Uh, And that's why uh, Mercy relies only on herself and what she can do for herself. So those villains, you know, I felt were, I needed to put them, make them added to the task. You know, physically, you know, wasn't like Desiree would be a match for them, but the woman was just diabolical, you know, and relentless in what she wanted to do. And she was very quick-witted and she was also very slick 
in her planning and all that. And she was a worthy match for them. Yeah, I thought she was, a, even though she's older now, she was a worthy match because she is, I mean, she's pure evil. I mean, th this woman is despicable in every level. She is, um, you know, definitive evil. Um, and so she's scary because you don't know what she's going to do. You, you get the sense that even though she's older now, she's not, you know, she still has power. She could pull something. She could do something. And she does do something. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, she subjects them to a lot of danger. Um, do you want to talk at all about, uh, you know, Carol, for the people who've been following the, the Atley Pine series, Carol Blum, um, you know, her relationship with Carol Blum, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I would. So Carol Blum is actually a charity auction winner name, a lady in Florida, her husband, uh, bought that in a charity auction, um, and he paid a lot of money for it. He paid for enough money for every student in Nassau County, Florida, to be given a free book, which was wow. great. Wow. Um, so Carol Blum, actually, we have a place in Florida, too, and she's a neighbor. And after the first book came out, um, she drove by and rolled her window down. She goes, David, my friends never realized how cool I was <laughs> you know, after we read the book. So for me, Carol, Carol was the sort of auxiliary uh, mother that Atlee really never had growing up. She was a woman who can give her some guidance, be a moral touchstone, um, pull back on Atlee, who could be impulsive at times, a little knee-jerk at times, and just to give her some maternal instruction. You know, it could, in, in one book I had, uh, Atlee was going to go out on a, on a date, and it was just Carol helping her get ready, you know, helping her, you know, let's fix your hair up. I think the makeup needs a little bit of work because – Pines is not into that stuff, but uh, Carol is sort of the mother, you know, she gives a little of the things that most daughters have growing up, relationship with their mom they have growing up, but Atlee didn't with hers. And so I've, I, I like the pairing of women who were um, separated by about three decades. And you almost never see that, particularly in thrillers. You're never going to see a 35-year-old FBI agent and a 65-year-old, you know, mother of six working together. It's just not how this stuff works. And I thought it was interesting dynamic to bring those generations together. Cause I really think it does work. And I don't think Atlee could actually, I'm not sure how well she could function without Carol. Carol is a very needed sidekick for her and, and much of the support that Atlee needs. Has, has Atlee in your view, has she grown at all or changed at all in the series? I know with a series as opposed to a standalone, you're more constrained with, with you know, the character's arc and, and what they can do and where they can go. But do you think, has she, has she learned anything that changed her in any fundamental way? I think probably the biggest thing is that when you started out with Atlee in Long Road to Mercy, uh, she was a standalone, aloof, uh, her way or the highway. Um, and she really felt like she didn't need anybody, not even really Carol at that point. She wanted to do her job, put away bad guys, and that was it. She didn't want a whole lot of crap or input from anybody else. Uh, and she always felt assured that she could get the job done. Over the span of the books, if you look at what's happened to her, it's beaten her down a little bit so that she has a little more humility. Um, she has understands that she can't do this alone. Um, and I think she also realizes that survivor's guilt that she had, while understandable, um, should no longer remain with her at this point, And she can move on from that and have some closure in that way. And shouldn't feel guilty about that anymore. 
But what I'm hoping at the end of this novel and going forward with her in a, in a future book is that she can open up to people more, not, not be as guarded with people and not feel like, you know, it's okay to be helpless at times. It's okay to need assistance from other people at times. You don't have to have all the answers all the time. Um, and if you just slow down a little bit, there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, I think that she's lived for somebody else all these years. She's lived really for mercy, tried to live two lives instead of one for her absent twin. And now I think that it might be time, and she's learning slowly, that maybe it's a little bit of time to maybe attack some of the things that she would like to do with her life and lead a life that maybe she would want rather than always having to think about somebody else. So we're going to see more Allie Pine? We are. I mean, I know that the Mercy Pine is resolved, but I put a lot of work and effort into creating Atlee Pine's character. And my litmus test at the end is, do they have more fuel in the tank? Do they have more road to run? Is there more runway left there? Um, and my answer was yes. I mean, I've never really, I, other than Long Road to Mercy, I haven't really touched her career as an FBI agent. You know, she can do lots of cases everywhere. And out in that, in, in that area of the country, there are a lot of interesting things I could get her involved in that I think might be a lot of fun. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me conclude then. Um, David, do you want to just tell people about your, um, your master class, how they can, how they can sign up for it? Cause uh, I mean, it's great. Yeah. So masterclass.com and you can go on and they have, I think they have a couple of different subscriptions. You can either go on and just do mine or for a little bit more money, you get access to lots of them. I think that's how it works. Um, they, they, out of the blue, they contacted me and said, you know, we've, you've reached the tipping point. They say when enough people ask for somebody, then mm -hmm. they reach out to that person. And they had, I guess, a lot of people who wanted me to do a master class. And so they based their revenue models and profits. You know, it's a business as well on what they thought they could do. So they brought a, brought a team of like 15 people down to um, my neck of the woods. And we spent three days filming this. And um, But I took it really seriously because I didn't want it to be fluff. I didn't want to sit, sit there and just tell story after story, anecdote after anecdote about me. I wanted to give people really practical advice on this is at least how I do it. I'm not telling you this is the way to do it, but this is how I approach my craft. And this is what I think is important. And this is at least a process you could think about and maybe mold it into your own way to do it. So I put a lot of time and effort in putting these things together, you know, how I do research, what my writing process is like, how I edit, how I approach the business of publishing. And so many writers don't even think about that when they're starting out their careers. They're just happy enough to get published. They're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Throw me a few dollars and I'll be happy forever. So don't worry about anything else. And then they get down the road and they wonder, gee, why aren't my books selling as well? Why am I not in that shop? What, what's going on? And I'm not telling any writer to micromanage, but you need to be aware of your career and you need to be aware of how the business works. And there's nobody who's going to care about your career, not your agent, not your friend, not your publisher more than you do. You know, it's your name out there and you need to sort of be responsible for it and then be a reasonable partner with your publisher. Um, because every time you go out on the road, even whether your publisher is paying for it or not, you're building your fan base, building your career. When I first started out, I would go to bookstores, any city I was in on vacation, it didn't matter. I'd go into every bookstore, introduce myself. You got some stock, I'll be glad to sign it for you. I got to know booksellers that way. And let me tell you, you know, particularly independent booksellers, there was one out there that initially gotten three copies of Absolute Power. I went to the store and signed those stock for her. Um, we had a nice chat. That woman ended up selling 1,500 copies of Absolute Power out of one store. And so that's the power of, of personal relationships. I love meeting people, and that's a good way to learn the business. Let me tell you, booksellers know the business in and out. Everything from the writer side to the publisher side, because they're right in the middle of all that. 
So the master class for me was just a really nuts and bolts of I wanted to be practical, I wanted to be realistic, I wanted to be inspiring and hopeful for people, but I also want to let people know that you know, this is work. This is a lot of work. Don't expect to sit down on a Friday and finish the book on a Sunday and then fact and fax it out and then get a movie deal on Monday. It's just not how it works. And you need to go into writing for the right reasons. And if you do and you really want to run that gauntlet, then I can show you some of the ways that I put my books together. Uh, everything from the editing to the research to the writing to the to, it's it's sort of A to Z because when I put this together, I told Masterclass, okay. This is going to take a while, you know, um, and here are all the things I'm going to talk about. And this is how I'd like to put it together, because I really want to help people. You know, the publishing industry, we need new voices and new blood all the time. I'm not going to be writing forever. John Grisham, James Patterson, we're all not going to be writing forever. We need new voices and a diverse selection of voices to come up and take over. Um, and I, I thought my masterclass would be a way to help inspire and also let people know this is what it's really like. I'm not selling you a fantasy. This is the practical world of publishing and writing. Yeah. Thank, thank you for giving that advice to, to writers and would-be writers. And I think we're going to end there. Um, this is William L. Myers, Jr. I am the author of the Philadelphia Legal Series. You can buy my books on Amazon. You can buy David books all over the world. Um, <laughs> David, thank you very much for being on the show. I really had a, a good time talking with you. Um, good luck with the new book and all the books that come down the road. Thank you very much.